Today on CityCast Boise, I'm talking to Boise State Public Radio's James Dawson and our audio producer Evelyn Avitia about what we know and don't know about the murder of four University of Idaho students. And we share our moments of joy during a tough week of news. It's Friday, November 18th, 2022. I'm Emma Arnold, and this is CityCast Boise. Hi, Evelyn James. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, Emma. Hello. Let's just start right in with the U of I story. Uh, James, I read your article from last night. For people who maybe haven't been following, the small community of Moscow has been just totally rocked by this apparent and very horrific murder of four university students. Authorities have released very few details, and with like the lack of info, people have been left to speculate for themselves, and rumors are flying. Jimmy, what are your thoughts on this tragedy and how it's being handled? Well, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a terrible tragedy. You know, Moscow is a, a town of 25,000 30,000 people with the students, uh, you know, on campus, they're counted as well. And it, and it's really been a pretty safe community. Like you, you don't really have the murders maybe once every, uh, you know, several years. Uh, we had a couple while I was there back in the late 2000s, early 2010s. So the basic information that we know is we have these four University of Idaho students who lived in some sort of off-campus housing, which was really it's it's a block away from campus let's let's be clear i used to live right around that area too so police got a call uh, of an unresponsive person at this place and and found uh, you know these four students dead and ever since then we've gotten very few details uh you know we just learned i believe on uh tuesday that they believed that it was a stabbing that uh, you know something like a knife was used during the press conference on wednesday the uh, police chief james fry said you know, confirm that it was a stabbing. They don't believe that there were any signs of forced entry. Autopsies were being performed. We don't have those results as we're recording this on Thursday morning, but those should be uh, hopefully released to the public soon. And they have no suspect. Uh, so really, the the major takeaway for me was, you know, on Sunday after they lifted uh, the campus-wide lockdown after a couple hours. Police said that there's they don't believe it's a threat to the community whatsoever. They believed it was an isolated, targeted attack. And they repeated that line for several days. And then yesterday at the press conference, uh, you know, Police Chief Fry said, we cannot say there's no threat to the community. So I'm not sure why there's any sort of backtracking on this or why they said there was no threat to the community in the first place. Yeah, that press conference was really something. It it kind of felt like mayor from Jaws type of thing. Like after four days of saying there's no threat, they're like, oh, there's maybe a threat. And Evelyn, I know this must hit very close to home for you as a recent U of I grad. Can you tell us a little bit about the community in Moscow and, and imagine like what they're feeling after seeing that press conference? Yeah, I mean, it is a small community and you'll hear the phrase like tight knit community. And it's so true. You build a routine and you start seeing all these people in the same places. You're walking to class, you're recognizing these people, you're hanging out, doing homework in the library, and you'll recognize the same people. It's very easy to make friends, very easy to just start conversations. And yeah, I just, uh, wow, it's just, it's just wild to think that students are so afraid and parents, I can't even imagine what the parents are feeling for, the, you know, the situation. And one thing we always say 
is that it's just such a comfortable and safe community. Um, For example, we never locked our doors. We could always just walk in and we knew we'd be hanging out with our friends and we would be hanging out at this apartment. Okay, let's go visit our friend over there. Let's go hang out at that apartment. And so at least during the daytime, it was very easy to just walk in and hang out with friends. Um, We'd be walking home from the bars at 2 a.m. And you would just meet a whole bunch of people, start a bunch of conversations like students were always out and about. And it was just easy to feel safe in the Moscow community. It's a very special place. And so it's just, yeah, devastating to hear this. You mentioned parents. And I know as a parent of a college kid myself, I would be uh, very afraid and pulling my kid until they have some leads, at least. And that we are hearing that, that a lot of students and parents are telling their kids to like leave early for Thanksgiving break and come home because they're apprehensive about the lack of suspect or suspects. And like, what do you both make of that, that fear that students and parents are expressing? I, I think it's legitimate. I mean, if, if we have no idea who or the people involved, if it's multiple, you know, who did this and, and what their motives were because of the lack of information we're getting from the police, you know, it's, it's got to be a terrifying situation. I know that uh, University of Idaho President Scott Green yesterday at the press conference, uh, you know, he, he was very emotional. He took several pauses when he seemed to be breaking um, composure and said that, you know, we're, we're here to help our students in any way possible, whether that's those who might feel better going to class and kind of having that normal routine, talking to their professors and, and you know, fellow students in the class. Or if you don't feel safe and you, and you feel like you need to go and, and do online classes or whatever, that's fine, too. He said that all of those absences will be excused. Yeah, I thought that was very supportive of them to do that and to acknowledge people's fear. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Moscow Mayor Art Betke. He was quoted in The New York Times as calling the homicide uh, a crime of passion. Uh, later, he sort of pulled that back and said, well, that was just one potential scenario. But Jimmy, can you talk us through why people found that wording to be so problematic? Well, I mean, it it implies that there might have been some relationship, uh, you know, romantic or, you know, unrequited or otherwise between whoever the suspect might be and one of the victims or someone else who, you know, wasn't killed at all. Uh, you know, there were two other roommates in the house during the attack who uh, were uninjured. And we don't know if they were the ones who called 911 or not. But that's another little tidbit of information we got from the press conference. Yeah, that was a very strange detail that felt tacked on yesterday. Evelyn, I wondered what you thought of that being just sort of wedged in there yesterday. Oh, also two roommates felt very confusing to me. Yeah, it does feel very confusing. Um, And then, of course, you can't help but think about the trauma and how difficult this must be for those two roommates. We don't know the situation. We don't know, you know, what happened to them. And so I'm thinking about them as well. But of course, the biggest question is, like, why was 911 called so late? I think that's what everyone's thinking. If there were two other people there, what happened? Do we have any idea who called 911? Not at this time. No. The police chief, James Fry, declined to say whether it was uh, one of the two roommates who uh, were uninjured in that situation. And I doubt that the 911 call will be released publicly uh, until much later. So it'll, it'll be kind of a waiting game. You were there during the aftermath of the murder of uh, 22-year-old grad student Katie Benoit. Can you talk a little bit about the lessons learned or lack thereof? 
the parallels are so different with this particular case because that was kind of an over and done with thing, uh, you know, over the course of, oh, uh, less than 12 hours. So, um, you know, Katie was smoking a cigarette on her back porch while baking cookies with her roommates, uh, you know, at night and her former professor and lover Ernesto Bustamante uh, was either waiting or drove up and shot her a bunch of times with a 45 caliber handgun. And then it was kind of a manhunt from then on. You know, as the night progressed, I was outside the house for a few hours talking with police, eventually filed something for um, the radio station I was working at at the time. And then sometime in the very early morning hours, they found Ernesto's rental car at the Best Western Hotel uh, next to Winco on the Moscow Pullman Highway. And then there was a sort of standoff before he uh, eventually killed himself. So the the difference here is that the criticism of lack of transparency was coming from the University of Idaho itself, which didn't really want to release his personnel records, whether or not, you know, they had received complaints from students about inappropriate uh, behavior with other students, whether he was having sex with other students or um, saying very inappropriate things in class, which we later learned was true. But it took months and months and months for that to get released to the public after, you know, news organizations complained. Whereas here, you know, this is all being headed by the Moscow Police Department. Uh, it was off campus. So, you know, the university isn't really super involved, I would I would think, uh, aside from, you know, giving all the information that they can to police. Let's move on to another story you've been working on. Uh, Jimmy, tell us about this crimes against nature lawsuit story. Yeah. So the crimes against nature statute that was formerly on Idaho's books, uh, you know, has been there since the mid 1800s back in the territorial days, uh, which basically includes anything from homosexual acts to uh, sex with animals, necrophilia, things like that. Basically, five year uh, felony sentence to up to life in prison. This was a pretty common law across the country, you know, back in the day, but it was eventually overturned, or at least these uh, anti-sodomy laws were overturned in 2003 by the U.S. Supreme Court saying that, you know, states <laughs> states can't do that. That's an invasion of privacy, violates the 14th Amendment. And so this case came uh, sort of uh, in the very early days of the pandemic in, in September of 2020, where this anonymous man who just got released from a, a prison in Idaho basically was saying, why should I be required to register as a sex offender, you know, for something that happened in another state uh, under their crimes against nature law when it uh, certainly uh, wasn't really enforced in Idaho anymore? Eventually, another couple people signed on to that lawsuit, including uh, Randall Mengus is the only named person that we know. And he was convicted in the in the mid 90s of having sex with uh, two 16 year old boys when he had just turned 18, which, you know, wouldn't fit the definition of statutory rape today. And so they're essentially arguing that, you know, since the Supreme Court overturned these anti sodomy laws, like that, there's no reason for us to be on the books. And on the sex offender registry, which is a pretty onerous thing. I mean, within a few days of moving anywhere, uh, you have to notify police of where you've been and where you're going to be, your permanent address, stuff like that, and have your, you know, your face, your mugshot all over there for your neighbors to see and, and everything, uh, which, you know, depending on the crime may or may not be an adequate thing, depending on how you view it. But regardless, the state settled this case uh, just, a, you know, last week. 
And it's something that they're going to have to take uh, potentially dozens and dozens of people off of the state sex offender uh, registry for this after saying that, no, these people are a danger to society and other arguments like that in their filings. Mm. So it seems like in more recent times, these laws have been used to target and punish LGBTQ people. But you reported in your article that they didn't really start out that way. What was the how did they start out? No. And that was kind of the interesting thing going back, uh, you know, uh, several hundred years because the origins kind of came in the 1500s. Really, it was just all about, you know, if you wanted to have sex, then it had to be within within traditional marriage, essentially, to, you know, quote this professor that I, I talked to for for this article. And it really wasn't, you know, a, an anti LGBTQ thing until the 1800s. Uh, you know, the colonies, nearly all of them revoked the death penalty for sodomy until, you know, the early 1800s. Not too many uh, people were actually being, uh, you know, charged with these crimes. It, but then we saw the persecution of the LGBTQ community kind of ramp up in that like late 1800s, like up through the mid 1900s. Um, obviously, the the Boys of Boise scandal, something local here uh, that people might remember where you had a bunch of people accused of having sex with a bunch of underage boys. And really only one of them, I believe uh, one of those cases, you know, actually only one man was convicted. OK, so if people are on this list, their whole life is turned around and then it's time to, like, get them off. Right. Um, they They get their names off the list or Idaho does whatever Idaho does. Then what? Like, I I just I don't understand how, like, they've had to live with all of these conditions if they weren't supposed to be. Then what happens from there? They essentially just get dropped back into society. Here you go. Uh, You know, they have to remove these names within 21 or 22 days of the order being issued. So they've they've really only got a couple weeks left to do this. But this does enable them to, you know, live near a school or live near other uh, parks, for example. Uh, You know, those are those are two other situations that, you know, they kind of have to conform to. And it was interesting. (laughs) I used to live in Delaware and uh, the city there made it so onerous for sex offenders to live within, you know, a thousand feet of this and a thousand feet of that. Well, that city is very compact. And because of that, there literally was no place in the city limits that a sex offender could live. And eventually they had to settle with the ACLU and and kind of, you know, retract all of that because otherwise it was violating their civil rights. Well, and to be clear, these people were they're labeled violent sex offenders. Yeah. But like one of the people named in the lawsuit was convicted of performing oral sex on his wife in another state. So, yeah, Evelyn's right to point that out. (laughs) Yes, that's correct. Well, lots of heavy things in the news uh, right now. I know all three of us have been having to keep up on a lot of this stuff. So I wanted to ask something a little lighter towards the end. Uh, Evelyn, Jimmy, what is bringing you some joy about Boise this week? What's something that's making you feel good? Ooh, well, when I talked about my Caldwell or Dane Caldwell, one of those things was Winter Wonderland and Winter Wonderland is opening on Friday. So I'm super excited to have the community just lit up and everybody out and about enjoying the lights. That sounds like exactly what I need. Uh, You will see me down down there if you go t- tomorrow night i think I, I feel like that would be really really nice what about you jimmy 
Yeah, I would say something that popped out to me when I was driving around was uh, at the Cathedral of the Rockies. They have their their big Christmas tree display up already. Uh, so that was that was nice. Otherwise, just this like cold weather. I, I'm a fiend for cold weather. I love it. It's so cozy. It's Pendleton season. Uh, <laughs> I get to put on the heavy shirts and, and bundle up in, in coats. And uh, just it makes me feel so cozy. I also love that same. And I love sweater weather, hoodie weather. That's that's my time. Uh, mine is uh, a little more personal. I made dinner last night for uh, my kid as a wrestler. And they we do like these potluck things where you feed all the kids and uh, the chicken shawarma I made major hit. Uh, the kids really enjoyed it. So that's always like a real feather in my cap if a bunch of teenagers are like, oh, what is this? It's amazing. And I was like, ha ha. So, so that's what I'm feeling good. The Boise wrestlers ate my chicken shawarma and they were really happy about it. So that's so fantastic. That, a little, love it. A few little rays of sunshine. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both so much. This was so great and so informative. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thanks, Emma. Thank you, Emma. That's all for today here on CityCast Boise. The show is produced by Frankie Barnhill and Evelyn Avidia. We had help from Natalie Rivera and Brian Vance this week. Our newsletter writer is Blake Hunter, and I'm Emma Arnold. Our music is by All the Kimonos and local band Up Is The Downsta. We'll be back Monday with more local voices. Have a good one, Boise. Hello. Yeah, sorry. Santiago <laughs> was uh, uh, <laughs> really distracting me a little bit. I should have kicked oh, her out. I love it.